Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guests today are Benedict Shupley, co-founder and co-CEO FQX, and Daniel Killenberger, CTO at FQX. FQX is a Zurich-based fintech whose ambition is to digitize corporate debt so it can be registered, issued, transferred, and eventually traded on a blockchain infrastructure. Benedict and Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for being here. It's great talking to you, thanks. Benedict, perhaps I could start with you. What, I've just referred to corporate debt digitizing it, but what fundamental problems in the in the debt markets is FQX designed to solve? Thank you, Dominic. Um, so if we look at the debt markets, which are you know some of the oldest markets in the world, um, historically, they've grown to become extremely fragmented and liquidity is stuck in silos. Um, so that is in national silos. Uh, we have different uh, legal frameworks, uh, depending on whether you have a bond in Germany or whether you have one in the US. And then we have fragmentation across instruments. So um, a bond is registered on an entirely different infrastructure than, for example, a loan or a uh, certificate of deposit is. Um, and so this fragmentation, vastly informed by uh, you know, national, legal, um, jurisdictional silos, um, just, I think, inhibits the true potential of, of the global debt market. And then, of course, uh, this um, legal inefficiency comes with a lot of infrastructure inefficiency, where we just see, you know, in order for a bond to actually arrive um, at the end investor um, from the point where it's you know issued from the, the the borrower, it takes so many different steps and so many intermediaries. And we believe with blockchain technology, we can vastly alter the way corporate debt is being issued. Now, as you've just said, corporate debt takes many different forms. It takes there's, there's loans, there's certificates of deposits, there's there's commercial paper, and Promissory note is a, is a generic term which can cover all those different varieties of debt. Now, is the uh, your own concept of an e-note, is that sufficiently flexible to cover all those different facets of the debt markets or just some parts of it, some of those varieties or all of them? That's an excellent question, Dominic. So the idea behind the e-note really is that we have a kind of one and all generic corporate that instrument, which can cover a variety of financing purposes. Now, of course, as a startup, we have to apply focus uh, when going to market, which is why we focus um, on a niche um, that revolves around uh, short-term debt, um, as it's not as much catered to, and it's not the most competitive market, or one of the most ones like the bond market is. Um, now, in terms of what the instrument can cover, this goes back to the previous uh, question, and that is, we believe the instruments itself um, that are, you know, on vastly different infrastructures actually have also grown to be this different historically. And we believe these some of some of these um, delineations which separate a commercial paper from a bond, from a certificate of deposit, are much more um, artificial than they are inherent uh, by nature. And so if you can actually create um, an infrastructure that is level playing field and is blockchain based, we believe 
we can fulfill most of these financing purposes for which a bond, the commercial paper is used um, with one and the same instruments. And you achieve a much higher flexibility and modularity on the side of the issuer. So, you know, an issuer can just switch between short-term and long-term. Um, it doesn't mean it becomes actually a different instrument. The issuer can switch between, you know, just having one investor, having a bilateral loan over to having hundreds of investors making a kind of a commercial paper or bond product. That's our vision. Now, your initial focus has been on, on short-term debt, i.e. debt instruments, which are less than a, a, a year away from maturity, money market instruments, uh, and trade and supply chain financing. What was the reason for that? Why didn't you go straight to long-term debt as well? So um, the great thing about the promissory note is its abstract nature, right? It's an unconditional promise to pay. Um, and this means uh, that it has some superiority compared to uh, instruments which are very prevalent in the uh, factoring or supply chain finance space, because they're most of the times just receivable space, and you don't actually have an abstract unconditional promise to pay. You don't have really an instrument or a debt instrument. Um, that's why we figured uh, this would be actually a great niche to start alongside corporate debt. Um, but we then also um, realized over time, and I think that's just some of the things you have to do as a startup, is uh, fail and learn and, and adapt, is that um, the market is not flexible enough to really embrace innovation of the kind that we, we offered. Um, so we wanted uh, originally to also work with um, you know, financial intermediaries offering supply chain finance solutions to corporates. And you could tell, although many of these corporates are in dire need of innovation, they don't have the culture to embrace it. And this is why also we have focused now on more um, corporate debt actually um, and uh, less supply chain finance and also are going much more in the spirit of, of digital asset because culturally, uh, these companies are much closer to us as a, as a blockchain startup. Do you have plans to extend into the um, the long term debt markets, by which I mean to include fixed rate, you know, term bond issuance as well? Yeah, so absolutely. I think once we've established our instrument as a market standard for blockchain based debt issuances, um, focusing on short term debt in the initial phase, we will then venture out also into the long uh, term. Uh, market. There is one, I would say, caveat to this. Um, we thrive on standardization. So the more standardized um, an issuance can be, the better for our instrument. If we go into the really long-term space, you know, so um, know, syndicated loans or, or long-term bonds up to 10 years, they're oftentimes so customized that it's difficult to leverage blockchain technology and standardization and digitization to really make it worthwhile. So that's why I think a natural caveat is in there somewhere. And other, you just mentioned the, the, the difficulty of servicing very long-term um, bond issues, but are there other challenges apart from the duration issue? In other words, do they make more demands in terms of asset servicing where they have coupons, those coupons may be variable, they may have redemption schedules and, and so on. Is that, an, is that an obstacle to getting into the long-term bond markets as well, those sort of issues, the asset servicing side? Absolutely. I think from a, from a mere technical perspective, right, the more kind of um, payment flows in one asset life cycle we have to include, the more complex it gets. 
And that's why also our initial product that we've already gone to market with are zero coupon instruments, where we basically only have two payments, and that is um, the, the issuance and the redemption. And we don't have any interest uh, bullet payments in the, in the duration. Now we understand that many you know, investors are used to this, but also over time, um, you know, we can cater to both. We can have interest um, uh, paying, paying loans, but we do actually believe the standard will then air to actually just the zero coupon instruments in the uh, short-term space. Now, Daniel, perhaps I could bring you in at, at this point. This is not just theory we're talking about here, this is practice as well. And the recent uh, Babel Finance e-note issuance which raised um, USDC, that indicates that FQX is moving into digital lending, something that uh, Ben yep. referred to a minute ago, using stable coins um, and possibly cryptocurrencies as well as, as collateral. Now, how important is that as a potential market for FQX in the long term? Um, I think I will elaborate quickly on first on the short term, which um, is that we're actually quite focused on exactly this kind of markets to begin with in a certain sense um, uh, that our new platform will cater uh, a lot to the um, stable coin kind of lending applications. And we do that because we, uh, as a company, believe in the future of finance being uh, mainly on uh, 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 the blockchain as tokenized assets and currencies become more prevalent. And this is mainly for the reasons of transactional efficiency, but also um, just for um, custody reasons that um, uh, clients and users will, are able to hold those assets directly in, in their wallet, which as we've seen in the uh, recent um, kind of meltdown of uh, Central fi centralized finance corporations, which have lost customers' uh, assets, given that they were managing them and customers didn't have direct access and not direct custody. Uh, you can see how problematic um, centralized um, managed assets can be if they're not properly managed. And yeah, given the future outlook, um, stable coins and tokenized assets are something that we're really focusing on both in the short term and the long term. So, uh, yeah. Uh, as you mentioned a minute ago, you are focused on digital assets, tokenized assets being issued onto uh, blockchain networks. Now, where that has been happening in the recent past in the in the DeFi markets, for example, all those issues have been collateralized. So are, are your issues going to be fully collateralized, partially collateralized, or even uncollateralized? Are you going to follow that DeFi model? Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna follow the DeFi model in the in terms of it feeling like a DeFi experience. But um, we will distinguish ourselves by really um, backing the token by this uh, legal claim, which um, so I think a good way to explain it is that in the like in the Sunny case, everything goes well. Um, you go through a process that feels like DeFi, where you deposit your 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 investment, and after a certain point, you will redeem your yield, and it will feel all like DeFi. The difference being that you don't have to necessarily provide collateral um, as as an issuer of the of the debt instrument, 
you can do it completely uncollateralized, given that in a, a worst case scenario, you have the legal backing of the underlying token, which you can then enforce that claim in a court of law. So there's the two aspects here are really the, the thing that we think um, distinguishes us from potential uh, other companies is that we do the DeFi experience in the in the in the sunny case where everything works well, but in in the worst case scenario, you do have this legal claim which will cover you uh, in, in case of a default or or a similar scenario. Maybe to 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 add to this is is really um, we have built an in, an instrument that uh, covers really the the, the full range um, from fully or even if you want so over collateralized to completely unsecured, right? And this is just in the end, yeah. kind of a, a, a spectrum from if someone wants to go unsecured, obviously they will have to deliver some kind of proxy or credit uh, rating. Uh, we can facilitate this by um, you know, providing anything from a Moody's, Moody's credit opinion to a fully regulated short-term rating, which is provided uh, by some um, service providers in, in Europe all over to then, you know, just um, uh, a secured and, and collateralized transaction overall, because we provide this um, globally enforceable and secure legal framework, we believe we can lower the loan to value ratio and just create more capital efficiency. And I think that's the, the gist of it. Now you've both said in your different ways that you can do this uncollateralized, which makes it very different from the DeFi markets where uh, have been characterized, if anything, by heavy over-collateralization. So you're, you are saying, are you not, that you can actually reduce the size of, of, of haircuts on average? In some cases, they won't exist at all, but um, in other cases, they will be much lower than that very heavy over-collateralization we've been seeing in the DeFi markets. Is that right? Yeah, that would be correct. Yeah. Okay. Now, how do you go about um, finding, you've got to find investors um, as well as issuers. Um, how do you go about finding investors and how do they express their interest in lending to the issuers which you found? Um, so I think there's, there's multiple ways of um, investors finding um, opportunities to invest in. So we Firstly, there's um, the way to come through third-party integrations, and they've already found their counterparties um, and are submitting those, those uh, the wish to invest uh, through a third party into our API. Uh, on the other hand, we will also um, emphasize more um, uh, our our own platform with a with a marketplace where um, investors and borrowers can find each other, and um, also, of course, we're, we're going to be looking to directly so um, coordinate some of the um, liquidity and work with uh, uh, and are working to um, line up partnerships to have the liquidity provided into our marketplace. So, um, yeah, that's the, ma the main avenues we're looking at right now. Uh, one of the one of the things you're looking to provide those those issuers with is flexibility. In other words, they can issue um, notes to to one investor, or they can, i.e., bilaterally, or they can issue notes to dozens of investors. Do it multilaterally, and um, you also want to give those issuers the, the the benefit of being able to, you know, particularly if they're coming to the market very frequently, and very big issuers will be in the market on a weekly basis almost. Uh, you can cut those issuance costs, which will be extremely valuable to those to those issuers. What's the 
what are the difficulties? What are the barriers to actually making that happen? And I'm thinking here really not of, of technical barriers, more of, of legal and regulatory barriers to allowing an issuer to do a bilateral issue here, a multilateral issue there, and to do them um, sequentially and, and frequently. Have you encountered legal regulatory barriers to making that happen? Well, thanks so much, Dominic. I think uh, this is uh, really a very poignant question. Um, and if you look at kind of the evolution of, of um, blockchain finance, decentralized finance, um, you know, starting from the, the ICO area um, era over over to 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 DeFi or CFI, people have always tried to circumnavigate securities regulation, right? And they they've tried to argue sometimes in very exotic fashion that you know their tokens, although very clear investment vehicles, uh, should not be considered securities from you know perspective of many different um, legal frameworks around around the globe. Um, FQX has done a lot of groundwork to enable the product that we offer. Um, and so we can actually offer fully regulated debt securities, um, something which really barely anybody else uh, can in this sense. Um, and that is because we've done the mapping for the past three years, making actually sure that we can account for the difference because you're absolutely right. A, a bilateral issuance between one investor and one issuer in the most cases does not qualify as a, a security. It may qualify as you know, a regulated banking business or a lending act, et cetera, but it mostly does not qualify as security. If we enter into offering you know, a series of standardized notes, you know, emulating a bond or a commercial paper, very clearly in most jurisdictions around the globe, this will be qualified as a security. And we have a number of measures um, that we take to mitigate um, the risk and make sure that what we offer is, is compliant. And this can be, you know, from just restricting it to a qualified investor base um, over to making sure that it's a private offer and not a public one as it relates to prospectus obligation, et cetera. So there are barriers, um, but we also know because of these barriers, there's a large opportunity out there. Um, and yeah, we've done the work, uh, both the legal engineering, the technical work to make sure we can uh, master those. And that legal engineering has been in Switzerland or has it been in multiple jurisdictions? Um, so we have uh, flexibility to actually um, offer, you know, several jurisdictions, uh, both as they relate to which investors can we address, which is issuer base can we address, which applicable law, applicable law can we offer. Most of our work, research, um, you know, non-action letters by financial authorities or Financial Conduct Authorities has been focused on um, Switzerland, European Union, UK, uh, and then some, let's say, digital asset heavy markets like uh, you know, Cayman, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Okay, that sounds uh, difficult. Also, sounds expensive <laughs> working all that out. Yes, um, uh, but you're not, you're also not entering a marketplace which is uh, which is completely de novo. You're you're entering a marketplace where there are existing sources of short term finance, cash-rich banks, increasingly asset managers are willing to fund uh, corporates as well. Um, what's been the reaction of the, if I might call it, the traditional short-term finance industry to your emergence, to your plans? So um, I think we've seen uh, quite a full spectrum of reactions from 
huge enthusiasm, um, you know, especially, I guess, product um, experienced people, you know, they see the benefits um, that on the one hand, we are conflating um, huge inefficiencies on the infrastructure side. And we can create uh, by, you know, um, bringing everything on one infrastructure and on a blockchain basis, we can deliver so much customer value. So uh, many see that. And I think this is where the the the, uh, the space is going, and it's kind of an ine inevitable direction. And others, of course, I would say, are more protective of their own of their own business. Um, they fear that this may have some catabolizing effects. Um, we feel it's uh, you know we feel it's less the case um, in the short term space than in, in the long term space. But even here, right, uh, when talking to banks, um, some of you know let's say they're head of corporate banking may fear that this would actually start competing with their revolving credit facilities. Um, and uh, others may think that this would compete uh, with some of their investment products. And But if, if this is the kind of um, spirit that you embrace, then you're never going to be able to master innovation and in the, the, the changing times that we live in. And so at the same time, we're so happy there are so many innovative uh, financial institutions out there, both from the digital asset space and also from the TradFi space that are aware of this and they know this is an inevitable change and they have to prepare for, for where it's going. And with those, we, we, we are working together and we, we are continuously um, going to work together. Now, Daniel, can I ask you a question about, uh, I suppose it's distribution really to, to issuers. Uh, as I understand it, issuers can access your, your infrastructure, the FQX infrastructure directly but they can also access it via intermediaries like Instamatch, CLST, and SIX, the, the Swiss Stock Exchange. And presumably there will be other third-party distributors or intermediaries, if you like, um, which you'll be willing to, to accommodate other exchanges even. Now, as you look forward, do you expect those indirect methods of accessing your infrastructure to be more important than people coming directly to the platform? And there may be a different answer to that in the short term to the long, um, but, but what are you what are you ex you're expecting indirect approaches to be more important than direct approaches now and in the future? So currently, for our indirect approaches, we're actually focusing a lot of the issuance to happen in within a CSD, but in uh, uh, and that's where the traffic from the third uh, from integrations is uh, is coming from mostly. Um, in the, in the near term and in the future, um, we're, we're actually expecting to be growing our uh, platform uh, issuances directly um, with, with customers directly through our platform uh, using the direct approach and the blockchain as the most efficient way um, to, to issue notes um, directly to investors. And we're expecting to grow this market together with the, um, the the blockchain ecosystem as this grows as well and it gets more established and more recognized. Uh, we're also expecting to uh, then grow into what is currently the traditional finance, which will then be able to use um, the, blockchain, the blockchain infrastructure as the efficient um, settlement layer, which it is. So, uh, FQX, like like everybody else, including the, the, the cryptocurrency industry, uh, is captured by the FATF 
recommendations on money laundering and uh, countering the financing of, of terrorism. Uh, mm. Now, you're going to have to um, put issuers and indeed investors through some sort of vetting process. Uh, and I understand yeah, you, you've got this whitelisting idea. Um, are you going to be doing this yourselves or are you going to be relying on, on third parties to do those checks? So we... Um, are currently building the KYC and KYB process. Some of that will be internal and some of that will work with um, third parties. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be looking to automate a lot of that as well. So um, with, with third parties, so that the, the experience of onboarding is as smooth as possible. Now, given the, the whatever um, onboarding path ends up uh, being, being chosen for, for the company, we will then be issuing um, the. Uh, we will techn technologically will be identifying companies using um, actually NFTs or uh, yeah using NFTs to identify companies to be able to participate uh, in in the programs that we're deploying to as that we're deploying to the blockchain. So you can imagine the the protocol itself being open, but uh, us as a service provider, when we deploy such an issuance program and us being the authority to authorize such programs to happen, we will only authorize those programs to happen if you show up with such an identifying NFT. And uh, no matter how the, the what process needs to happen on our platform before, so in terms of KYC, AML, we can reflect this in the NFT or uh, even on our platform directly um, to see that you're, that you're um, fulfilling those those requirements and uh, are, are able to participate in these programs. Even though the protocol is open, um, we can still, as the authority on those programs, um, uh, steer who's able to participate based on these, uh, uh, yeah, based on these access control rules. Would it, would it be very misleading, Daniel, to, to regard your NFT model as akin to a, a digital identity? Um, well, it's not directly an identity, given that you're not you're not going to be able to directly inspect and see who this um, identity who this entity is, right? So this is more of um, it's going to be pseudonym, and it's uh, it's going to be able to so that the program knows if the if that NFT is in possession of this wallet. It's been identified by the authority, which is us, and is then um, allowing participation. So in, in one sense, we know it is an identity, but for the general public looking at the blockchain, uh, it, they cannot ins inspect directly to, to uh, reverse engineer the identity. So. Right, so you get the benefits of, of running the, the checks, but you, they also get the benefit of not having to disclose who they are or... Yeah, the, uh, the, the identity will not be directly disclosed to the... Um, to the public blockchain as such, yeah. And am I right to think from what you've been saying that, that issuers and investors can work with third-party providers, which you have kind of approved um, because they provide a good enough service? That may be one for you, Benedict, I don't know. You know, can, can an issuer or an investor choose who runs those, those AML, CFT, KYC checks? So uh, certainly the, the goalpost would be to in, uh, incorporate as many existing providers as possible so we can really cover you know um as many uh, the broadest user base possible 
And uh, many of these services, right, it would be, um, I think, not prudent as a startup to build all of this yourself, uh, trying to reinvent the wheel because a lot of excellent groundwork has been done. Some really, really great products are out there in the market. And we just need to enable these products and incorporate them into, into our service offering. So you can really bank on all of the, the work that has been done. Well, Daniel's begun to talk about this, but what are, what are the benefits of, of that whitelisting process, both for issuers and for investors? So um, the, the, the benefits are, I think, you know, clear to, to um, the network effects you can generate. Um, it's just very logically, we're going to create more efficient markets by allowing more um, potential issuers to participate and more potential investors uh, to participate, thus increasing liquidity available and thus really um, then uh, yeah, creating more efficient markets, lowering transaction costs. And, and I think this is something that underlies most of our product features. Um, they really the idea and the spirit to lower transaction costs to generate more efficient market conditions. Um, and that's why also, for example, you know, we enable um, the connection also with CSTs um, such as SDX, because this way we can tap into more institutional liquidity, which otherwise wouldn't be able to participate in some of these blockchain-based debt instruments. Just very quickly, before we leave this subject of whitelisting, um, you refer to having a reg tech engine. Is, is, is the whitelisting what the reg tech engine does? Um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I, I think the, the, the whitelisting will be part of the reg tech engine. Um, the reg tech engine is a concept that is associated with the notion of compliance by design, right? So if you look at how uh, regulatory authorities worldwide, so whether it's the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK or BOP in Germany, or the SEC work is they work by kind of instilling fear and with sample rates. Um, but it's a hugely inefficient work because either um, they're going to have to find kind of like, you know, the bad apples that actually violate securities law, um, but they're not actually going to find all of them. So we have to assume there are so many unregistered um, securities offerings and violations of securities law, especially as they relate to a cross-border basis even more so in you know, the vastly unregulated crypto and blockchain space, where we know insider trading is a huge problem, front running is a huge problem, and unregistered securities offerings. Um, we believe that you know, regulation that is here to protect markets and consumers makes totally sense. And we can actually use leverage blockchain technology to make this regulation more efficient. What I mean by this is you can envisage now what we call the programmable security so you have your blockchain-based e-note, which is, let's say, a short-term bond, and we can program regulatory logic into this token by using smart contracts that say this token may never end up with a non-qualified investor, or this token may never end up with a US-based investor. Um, and before, you would actually really have to rely on, uh, as the, uh, you know, the conduct authority on sample rates, um, even you as a financial services provider had to have huge legal teams making sure you don't violate this law. And here we can actually bring the emphasis to the programming and just create compliance uh, by design. And I think it has a huge, huge potential to also change the way um, financial system works and, and how they interact with the law. 
You've talked quite a lot about law and regulation, and you've made it pretty clear that the issuers of e-notes onto your blockchain platform are going to be doing so on a fully regulated, fully compliant um, basis. Now, one of the regulations in, in Europe insists that securities, which is what we've talked about earlier in this interview, uh, securities have to be issued into a CSD. Now, I understand you're working with, with the two principal digital CSDs in Europe, that's SDX in, in uh, the Swiss Stock Exchange uh, digital CSD, but also with D7, the Deutsche Börse uh, digital CSD as well. And, and Daniel referred to this earlier about CSDs being an important um, vehicle for the growth of your, of your, of your business. Um, what, is it, what does issuing into a digital CSD mean for issuers what do they get out of it as opposed to complying with what the regulation says with what csd law in europe says um so the i think the issuers um they can benefit uh, from the fact that the digital csds they work more efficiently and uh, we believe that you know this is now just the beginning um first of all i think we will see a big shift of um, many other CSDs moving to digital asset-based technology, um, some of it Web3-based technology, some of it not. Um, but then overall, the CSDs itself, I think, will also stand um, a challenge in the future because the future is pushing towards bringing issuers and investors more closely together. Um, and a CSD inherently has a high level of, of intermediation. Um, and so we know um, right now, however, the way the law uh, is written, uh, many of the institutional investors, they can only invest if the assets are in a CST, they're you know, provided to them in a regulated delivery versus payment. And there is a lot of benefit uh, to that in, in, in the short term. We believe in the long term, a lot of these precautions can be replaced by technology, um, specifically Web3 technologies such as um, smart contracts and uh, blockchain-based debt instruments. Um, but so yeah, the benefits uh, for the issuers right now are they can nonetheless benefit from a more efficient system if they use the digital-based CSD. They can actually build um, understanding, learn how to educate or how to interact with a um, Web3-based financial system. And I think this will also you know, make them ready for once we enter a kind of a further step of decentralization in the future. Benedict, as you say, the, the logic of the, of the technology is to bring issuers and investors close together. And therefore the end point here must be issuers issuing directly into digital wallets controlled by investors on a, on a blockchain network, whatever the law yes. and regulation currently, currently says. And you were starting to give a flavor there of the type of issuer the character, if you like, of the type of issue who wants to experiment in that, in that way. Is it, is it very obvious to you what the characteristics are of that issuer who's prepared to issue directly as opposed to that issuer who would prefer to stick to the tried and trusted method of issuing into a CSD? Are you seeing those two types emerge already from the issuers you're talking to? I think that's a really excellent, excellent uh point of discussion. Um, I mean, there is an obvious candidate, which is, you know, blockchain companies as, as issuers. This could be a wide variety from, you know, um, blockchain or crypto exchanges, which uh, are in need of additional liquidity 
Um, this could be, uh, you know, market crypto market makers. This could be your uh, crypto trading firms all over to um, crypto lending platforms or uh, an other interesting candidate is the crypto foundations, right? Which uh, still have vast amounts of liquidity, many of them, but they their asset value have taken a dive. And so they don't want to liquidate their current assets at this, at this you know, low. And so that's why they want to have non-dilutive external funding from debt. And previously, you know, crypto foundations were not able to tap into regulated um, uh, securities markets. We can actually offer uh, that they, you know, can tap into the market and issue a blockchain-based commercial paper. Um, so the obvious candidates are blockchain companies, which have a proximity to the technology. They trust the technology and they don't necessarily need to trust in, in traditional institutions. But I think there's another, um, there's a, a spillover effect and that goes to, in general, tech companies. Because tech companies um, are built very differently from um, other you know, more traditional companies because they're built on the premise of efficiency. And when we talk to, you know, tech companies and many uh, techies, they do not understand the way the current financial system has been built up. They can't wrap their heads around these layers of intermediation inefficiency. And that's why they may not be, they might not be blockchain companies, but they understand the spirit. And it has a very clear benefit. And that is just a cost and efficiency factor. Because with the direct issuance, we can, you know, deliver, you know, 10x factor in terms of cost. We can deliver 10x factor in terms of uh, user experience, um, go-to-market in, in terms of how long an issuance takes, uh, self-custody, etc. So over time, I think the spillover will then come even to more and more traditional um, companies. But they, of course, are not going to be the first movers. So first movers are blockchain companies and then generally tech companies. As you say, many of these blockchain companies come from a, a culture, a background uh, um, from the old ICO era, in which the purpose was to uh, cut the costs, cut out the intermediaries, go directly to the source, if you like. Uh, now, is, is, do, do that group of issuers understand the benefits? Uh, and I'm talking here about another aspect of um, CFI, if you like, the traditional world of finance. I'm referring here to the use of, um, of unique identification numbers, ISINs, International Securities Identification Numbers. Do, uh, is that a service you're going to be providing to issuers of e-notes? So these e-notes going to have ISINs. Yes, yeah, so um, I think generally um, uh, this will be opt-in. Um, the issuers, you know, based on their... Um, the type of investor that they're targeting. You know, as an issuer, you need to have a kind of idea, who am I targeting with my offering? Um, if they say, you know, these are your traditional financial um, investors, um, they're going to be very happy having an ISIN number. Uh, for some of them, it's going to be kind of a nice to have. For some of them, it's going to be a requirement, right? But then the requirement oftentimes comes with more. And it has to be in a CSD, it has to be delivered or catered, uh, provided by delivery versus payment. Um, so FQX uh, can already cover ISIN issuance in a number of jurisdictions. Uh, if it's going to take place in the CSD, then the ISIN issuance will be covered by the CSD itself. If it's going to be off CSD, we can uh, cover that in a number of jurisdictions. Um, some of them, it, it works in a more automated fashion where we have contingencies of ISINs from the local national numbering agency. In others, it's a more manual process. 
but as we go, it's definitely the idea to build this network globally so that the issuer can freely choose should this uh, issuance have an ISIN number or not. Now, those ISIN numbers will be very useful in, in secondary market trading. We've talked almost entirely so far about, uh, about the primary market, about issuance. And at present, as I understand it, you don't provide a secondary trading platform, just a, a notice board, an OTC notice board for, for investors to, to sell or advertise for sale their, their e-notes. What does that, um, does that mean you're, you're presently, with your focus on the short-term finance market, are you basically operating in a market which is a buy and hold one only? And you'll start to develop the secondary trading functionality as you get into longer term forms of debt? Or does it mean something else? You probably both have views on this, but maybe Benedict first. Sure. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, uh, I think you, you've put it quite well. This is the, the outset um, is because we said, you know, we want to focus on short term debt in the beginning. Uh, very naturally, the you know, there's going to be a bigger emphasis on primary issuance compared to secondary market trading. But there's two caveats to this. The, the higher the issuance size will become, the average issuance size, and the bigger the brand of the issuer, the higher the need for, you know, a secondary market to come into existence. And so as we move on to uh, then larger issuances, larger issuance sizes, more recognized brands, even still, if we go to you know um, six months or twelve months maturity, uh, there will definitely be a uh, a secondary market out there, and I think there's a great need for that. Um, so we will see the emergence of let's say kind of you know let's say you have your biggest um, crypto trading company with a you know couple of billion in market valuation uh, or market cap. If they will issue a, a one year note. Um, I'm pretty convinced there will be enough market data and interest to create a secondary market around that. If we move further up the ladder, you know, let's say have Coinbase issue their first uh, one-year e-note, um, then there will definitely be a very interesting secondary market around that. Uh, Daniel, over to you. Yeah, especially if you if you go into more higher fractionalization, so you split the the the, the total va value of the the initial issuance into many fractions, you can see how this uh, becomes a liquid market quite quickly. And it's also one of the reasons why technologically we've decided to go to Solana initially is because we are anticipating um, having a secondary market in that way. So once the volume, as Benedict elaborated, becomes big and the, the fractions big and the fungibility becomes real with, with, um, uh, yeah, with higher volumes, um, on Solana, given the standard um, token program that's been established as like a standard that we're also uh, deploying and using, it becomes almost trivial to, to um, deploy an order book uh, directly on the blockchain using something like Project Zero, and uh, could also then be directly integrated into our platform or potentially also offered on, on other platforms as secondary market solutions. So definitely something we're anticipating, but you're right, um, currently starting with the short-term debt, um, uh, if you have one note, it's not going to be um, necessarily something you'd be looking to sell in a secondary market uh, with an order book. But yeah, and a full secondary market trading services is a natural evolution of of what you're doing. Is what you're really saying, right? Yeah, it's a natural evolution. We're, we're anticipating. 
Now, we've talked about the, the primary market. We've now talked about the secondary market. What about the third stage, if you like, which is the clearing and settlement of, of transactions in, in, in e-notes? And indeed, issuers, issuers, issues have to be bought and sold as well. So um, how is the settlement process going to work? Yeah, I think that this is where the strength of blockchain and smart contracts really comes um, and shines is where you, as an issuer, um, you just, you pay back your debt and you transfer it into an escrow. And basically as a holder of this note, this gives you a claim, a prorata that you have, um, if there's a hundred notes and you have five notes, you'll get tw um, a 20th of, of the what has been put in escrow and it'll be paid out. Um, your token will be um, that which represents this note uh, will be either destroyed or to change, change status. Um, this will make it super simple and trivial to have the, the repayment happen as efficiently as possible. But on the other hand, if the, the issuer fails to settle, this is where the legal framework comes into place. What I alluded to in the beginning is that in the dark times, um, you have you have the claim that you can enforce in court as well. So you, you don't need this collateralization um, uh, if the issuer fails to pay. Yeah. And the custody side, where, where are the investors going to hold these, these e-notes? Can they bring their existing digital wallets along or do they have to use one which you provide? So we've made the decision that uh, customers can bring their own wallets, and we believe that we're we're not trying to solve a um, a problem that is not in our domain. So and we believe that clients should bring their own wallets, and there's many companies that solve this problem very well. So, for example, we're working closely with Fireblocks um, to uh, integrate their solution as well with Wallet Connect uh, in the near future. And they have very sophisticated solutions in terms of uh, 4i principle, et cetera. And yeah, we're, we're really focusing on uh, bringing this debt security and we are not meddling in kind of the, the, the technology of the, of the wallet where the, the, the user actually has custody over those assets. We're just responsible for creating the assets. And Daniel, you've mentioned Solana uh, more than once. Uh, many people would think that going to Ethereum was the right and obvious obvious choice to make. But so, what factors? You touched on some of these already, but what factors persuaded you that Solana was the right choice for you to build your platform on? Right. So um, we were really trying to optimize for for user experience, and just the the fact that Solana is able to basically almost instantly settle those transactions, you get a user experience that is very close to something like Web2, where you just click, uh, do your thing, and it you become you, you receive instant responses. Now with Ethereum, you might have confirmation times up to multiple minutes, which depending on the transaction complexity, uh, if there's multiple transactions, uh, will add up to quite substantial times and will, uh, the decrease or make the user experience less enjoyable, less, uh, yeah, less snappy as such. But also there's um, other factors like the programming model, which to us, when we evaluated it, just seemed um, more scalable and 
there's okay i'll elaborate a little bit so in, in solana the the data and programs are separated right so for example there's one token program which is able to create many tokens and the tokens are just specified in their data structures now um on ethereum you have standards on how to implement tokens but they're all their own smart contract they're all they all bring their own program right and this standardization in solana allows us to um not not just us everyone who uses solana to um, to, to build on those standards and um have through that have interoperability between programs but also being able to build on top of those programs so using this spl token program which is responsible for uh, minting and creating tokens we're then also able to for example integrate something like project Xerum, which offers an order book for those tokens and you can choose two token pairs and build a, 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 an order book on that and there's many examples like this where there's managed token solutions that we can build on top of. And this interoperability is really, as as we judge, second to none. And um, yeah, just just like factors like um, developers, um, developer growth, but also wallet growth, which um, gives Solana a certain network effect and a certain growth metric that we also found quite attractive. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not looking to also expand later on into um, other blockchains. It's just that for the prime user experience that we're trying to build with this initial uh, launch, we have chosen Solana for this, uh, for the reasons I alluded to. Could, could you, on that last point you brought up there, could I, could I raise that question of interoperability now? Uh, sure. You know, across multiple blockchain protocols will clearly be helpful, um, both yep. to investors and to particularly to investors with their different wallets and so on, but, but also to issuers as well. It, it must, that must be vital to your long-term success. So yeah, how, absolutely. Important is, how important is that interoperability? So I think what we're um, in the sh short or medium term are focusing on is actually to bring in the liquidity from other chains. And there's um, protocols that allow us to do this, like something like Wormhole or uh, Wrapped Tokens, where we're able to bring tokens from other chains onto the Solana chain. And you could imagine that if you're um, holding your USDC um, on Ethereum and you wanna uh, you, uh, you wanna invest in a note on FQX, um, we would build um, a, bridging a bridging mechanism with one of those protocols where you could actually fund it into, uh, into an address on Ethereum, bridge it over to Solana and have it escrowed on Solana and also exit that way as well. So you could also exit back onto back onto the other chain. Um, so that's the most uh, what we believe to be the most um, uh, pressing uh, use case um, in the medium term. Uh, or, but also we're we're looking to potentially bring the the notes themselves and the programs themselves, like the the, the issuance programs that that issue those notes. Onto other blockchains, potentially Ethereum. Uh, um, uh, yeah, bring those tokens itself also to to those chains. Uh, but that would be a lower priority uh, after the liquidity has been dealt with. Uh, I would imagine. Your talk of bridges will make some people uh, listening to this somewhat uneasy, since they have acquired a reputation for creating vulnerabilities and. Uh, openings for, for hackers to steal your your assets. Um, clearly, you've got a long term solution to that. But what what how how large does 
the vulnerability of bridges loom in your concerns at this point? Uh, yeah, vulnerabilities in bridging protocols are something to be uh, definitely something to be taken seriously. Um, before we launch any any of these kind of bridging solutions, we would uh, definitely have to evaluate them very deeply and thoroughly, and uh, before we make any decision to to integrate them in our into our system. Now, I promise to come back to to a question you raised earlier, Benedict, on on legal certainty. You, you've obviously done a lot of work. Uh, to achieve legal and regulatory certainty, and, and in more than one jurisdiction, not just Switzerland, but I think you mentioned London, Singapore, uh, uh, Germany, possibly. I can't remember you mentioned the United States as well, but um, how are you offering that legal certainty, and in how many jurisdictions are you able to offer it? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, uh, to, to um, chime in here first, uh, legal certainty is, is probabilistic until you end up in a court and then it becomes binary at some point um, at kind of the last instance. Um, but nonetheless, as, as a system to provide trust in, in, in financial and business transactions cross-border, we can talk about legal certainty and our uh, framework um, is built on new and uh, also existing legal frameworks that provide a basis for blockchain-based debt instruments. Um, and so we have e-notes that can be issued under Delaware, UITA, so the Uniform Electronic Transactions Act, which provided the basis for electronic promissory notes going back even to 1999. Um, but also Singapore Electronic Transactions Act, which is uh, much more novel legislation, or Swiss uh, DLT register securities. Um, uh, we will expand this basis to also cover German electronic securities and soon also um, UK uh, promissory notes, which are blockchain based and digital. Um, the reason why we offer such a wide variety of um, legal bases and applicable laws is not because we have to offer one for each jurisdiction we want to be active in. It's very similar to, let's say, the derivatives market where the ISTA agreements are the standard uh, legal framework, and they are either issued under New York law um, or under English law. And this, of course, is accepted around the globe. It's the same with our infrastructure. Uh, you can use our e-note if you are in Singapore and you can use it based on Swiss law, or you can use it under Delaware law. Um, the difference is there are um, local proclivities to use a uh, applicable law that you're more inclined to use that you feel more familiar with. And that's why we offer this uh, variability on, on, on this front. Um, but the certainty we can offer because these legislation offer um, a framework for blockchain-based debt securities. And so we have built the tech and done the legal engineering in a way as to comply with these uh, provisions. And we can do this on a global level. The global standardization we reach via arbitration, um, so we can make sure that the parties, uh, wherever they may sit uh, around the globe, um, if you're part of uh, you know, 169 countries that are uh, member states of the New York Convention on the recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards, uh, then uh, you can um, enter into an ENO transaction. We will make sure um, that it will be enforced in a court of law, uh, actually no matter where the issuer sits. Um, yeah. Now, um, this is not a legal question, but it, it's an interesting 
question in terms of additional services you might be able to offer to to investors in particular. And maybe it's a question for you, uh, Daniel. Are you planning to offer staking as a service to the holders of of the coins? Um. So you could imagine um kind of indirect staking solutions with like having your collateral staked in some protocol or something like that. But currently we have no plans to directly stake any tokens in our platform. Um, it's features that we are thinking about with collaterals, but uh, currently nothing concrete, no. So um, an important question, uh, Benedict, what's what's the commercial model? How How is um, FQX going to get get paid? Are you taking a fee from every issuer, every issuance? Are you also taking a fee when you get the secondary market trading going from, from every transaction as well? What's How are you going to get paid? What's your model? So I think the, the basis will be um, uh, an issuance fee already is, as it's uh, already um, applied on our, our current product. Um, and uh, here, of course, uh, we can earn a attractive margin while still being highly competitive, right? Because we can cut the cost basis. If you think about, you know, you look at a um, bond issuance where in, you know, let's say a European market, um, a mid-cap, mid-sized company issues a bond of maybe 100, 150 million, they're going to have to pay 40 to 50 basis points to the bank, which is, you know, uh, 600,000 bucks. Um, just for, for issuing this instrument. So we have a huge uh, basis where we can cut costs and still earn uh, quite an attractive um, margin. And so this is the basis on, on which we scale a business. Uh, we will have some additional ancillary services that can also be priced in, um, you know, for example, potentially collateralizing or securing a transaction uh, can cost a bit more um, and then adding modularity if you, for example, want to add an option, something we haven't talked about, you know, we could technically also offer um, structured notes where you have an optional element to it, where the investor gets to choose which uh, currency they want to be paid back at maturity, uh, which can still be done with an e-note, but technically it becomes a structured product. Um, and so there are several elements where we can add, uh, you know, additional pricing. But, you know, for us, this is not just about squeezing out um, the market or, or whatever possibility there is, we really want to create more efficient markets and just deliver customer value. Um, so I don't think we haven't decided that, but we don't want to curb secondary market trading by including, you know, um, uh, yeah, additional fees uh, just if we can. Among the people looking forward to you scaling the business are going to be your investors. And when I looked at Crunchbase, I saw you'd raised uh, $6.7 million from a, a bunch of well-known venture investors, including six uh, fintech ventures. Uh, you've obviously spent some of that money on, on this detailed legal and regulatory research that we've, we've talked about. Um, are, you, are you planning to, to raise more money in the near future? And if so, what would you spend it on? Yes, uh, so uh, we're actually just uh, closing um, a small round at the moment, and uh, we will then uh, raise a Series A uh, next year uh, once we have uh, provided you know, further proof um, of, of the huge market opportunity that we have with our product. And uh, most of the money that we're going to raise next year will really be spent um, just on you know scaling the business um, 
And that means just, you know, actually adding more uh, marketing and uh, experienced, um, you know, high profile salespeople uh, to the team on the one hand, but also just continuously expanding uh, the product basis, adding features, et cetera. And uh, yeah, so we have really enough to, to spend it on. Um, and uh, as, you know, as, as with growing success, I think our team will, will definitely continue to grow. So some of the money will go on, on sales and marketing, as it were. What progress have you made so far in terms of the number of issues that you've, you've launched, number of investors you've attracted? What's the value and volume of the business you've, you've done so far? So um, we have, um, and we talked a lot about the, you know, the, the research, the infrastructure we, we've built. So the most resources uh, we haven't allocated on business development or sales in the past, but really on legal research and building the product because it's an extremely sophisticated product um, uh, that is far away from being trivial. Now that we've done this groundwork, uh, actually since, since a bit of a time now, we have um, gone to market. Uh, first, we had a POC phase. So it was really about creating validation for our hypothesis that this tokenized debt instrument can be used um, on an institutional grade level. Uh, we've done a, you know, a big pilot transaction with, with Credit Suisse um, where they provided financing based on an e-note to two public companies. We've done a number more of them. And so last year we ended uh, with still, I would say, uh, moderate uh, total issuance sizes. Uh, we have now uh, in the past half year um, grown that by more than 1,000%. Um, and so the average transaction revenue has risen and the average transaction size. So currently the average transaction size is around, uh, you know, a seven digit number, so low, low millions. And this will also continue to grow now as we also have the first series of nodes on SDX. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's looking good and uh, we just see a continuous growth and uh, we're looking very forward to now entering the market of really standardized uh, tokenized debt instruments with our blockchain-based uh, commercial papers and soon also blockchain-based bonds. Is one of the things you're looking forward to further international expansion? You've been very clear about the markets. You've done this heavy lifting in terms of, of legal and regulated research on you're obviously making progress in those markets. But are you planning to expand into other jurisdictions as you look forward? Absolutely. I think uh, the holy grail, the US market is still up, up for grabs. Um, but this is something we will do at a, at a later stage. Um, because it's kind of a one-shot opportunity and when we first want to build a global brand and global trust in other markets, uh, because we know not only is the U.S. market still the largest one, it's also the most competitive one that already offers a wide variety of short-term financing solutions. Um, so in order for there to be successful, we really need to have all our ducks in a row. And um, yeah, whereas in, in, in Europe, um, short-term financing is actually much less um populated and if it is then it's it's mostly by banks but very few alternative funding sources and the same actually applies to southeast asia so these are the natural markets for us to uh, grow in in the near future this is my last question i'd be interested in a thought from from each of you uh in response to it and perhaps daniel you could you could address this first what is success going to look like uh for fqx how will you know when you when, it, when you've succeeded I think FTX has succeeded if we have dramatically um, increased efficiency in financial markets um, using those automatic issuance and settlement programs that we're currently developing. 
So, and having brought self-custody to our customers um, and give them that security and efficiency increase um, that will bring, yeah, their, their ability to finance and get yield uh, to the next level. I think that will be uh, the success for FTX in my eyes. Benedict, do you have a, I'm sure you'll endorse that, uh, what Daniel's just said, but do you Absolutely. have something to add to it? Yeah, I think just really, if we get large companies and even at one point a traditional company to use our blockchain-based infrastructure for short-term or long-term debt transactions, and I think that will already be success to show that, you know, we have brought blockchain technology to use in a way that we really think it can create value for um, users and then in the end also for society as a whole if we could just generate more efficient um, sources um, of liquidity and a more level playing field access to liquidity um, that's going to be success for us benedict shukri and daniel killenberg of fqx thanks very much for taking the time